I like those people. <laughs> so uh, appreciate all your all's prayers. We've had a lot of people. When you have a congregation, you have people who go through a lot of different things, and it's uh, we're just thankful the way how faithful God's been around here to take care of us and uh, and watch over so many things. Because life happens to everybody, don't it? You're not going to get out of here without facing some adversity because you have an adversary. His name is Hasatan. We call him Satan in the New Testament. And so we're going to face adversity. <clears throat> but uh, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord shall deliver him out of them all. Somebody give God praise for that. Amen. We welcome all you that have joined us tonight around the globe, wherever you're at, and people who will receive this podcast sometime this week. Thank all of you all. We appreciate We did, uh, uh, you told me, who was the last uh, people we picked up? Peru. Peru, yeah. So we got 50-some countries in the world and almost all the states. We're, I think we've got all the states, but maybe two. We're trying to figure out what's wrong with them. We're praying for them. <laughs> But we, we appreciate all you that stand with the Word of God, that uh, pray for us and join us in stand, taking a stand for truth. The Word of God is the most important thing in our lives. In Psalm 138, he said, I've magnified my word above my name. And we know how important God's name is. It is a covenant name. But he said, I've magnified my word above his name. So we appreciate all of you that stand for the Word and we're going to stand for the word, and we are not for sale when it comes to that. So we're going to stand for God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you for uh, your word. You said heaven and earth will pass away, and we are seeing how that's possible as we watch our world spiral out of control. But you said your word will stand forever. So we're praying that not only will you give us revelation of your word, but we're praying that you'll give us the strength to stand on it as we race toward the end of this age. We thank you for forgiving us of our sins. We got a lot of folks in our family trees that we all would like to have their eyes, see their eyes come open, that they would be born again and that they would have their sins washed away. And so we just pray for that, Lord, as we come before you. And as we study your word tonight, give me the tongue of the learned and give us all, myself included, give us all ears to hear and may we be more like you when we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. That's the goal, right? The goal's not retirement. The no, goal's not to get the most toys. The goal's not to get fame and fortune. The goal is to be like Christ, right? That should be our goal. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. Let's pick up in verse 15. Please pray for me. This is tough sledding right through here. So we pray, and that's why I prayed that I would have the tongue of the learned. The Holy Spirit would uh, help both the uh, sayer and the hearer. So in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 15, it says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And that is a, uh, a debate I think people still have. His answer is clear. Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present, and we used this word a little bit last week, whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that through that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness so let me take you back to here this is the word that we used last week and i've used before it's the word parastano in the greek it's the word we translate present here and it means the setting up of something, right? So in other words, the key to having victory is to set yourself up to succeed spiritually, right? Do the things that will cause you and I 
to be successful in our spiritual journey. Do not set yourself up to fail. And you, if you'll notice, I remember <clears throat> being in college and being in those days when people would set themselves up to sin, right? They would, they would set a party up or something on a, on a weekend, and they would have designated areas to go and to get into debauchery, right? Still goes on today, people setting themselves up to do wrong. And the same is true for us as Christians now. We need to set ourselves up. Think of all the planning that goes in to people who do wrong. They plan. There's a lot of planning that goes into that, right? From these people who do wrong, they target a neighborhood or they target a, an individual or a situation. So if you're going to present, if you're going to parastano, if you're going to set yourself up, set yourself up to do righteousness, all right? So where's one way we can do that? We can see that with maybe friends or acquaintances, right? You may see a situation or a relationship that's not healthy, that you know it causes you to tend to go the wrong direction. So move away from that. Don't let that be a part of your life. I think I shared this week before last when we were here in Romans that one of my closest friends who's gone on to be with the Lord who actually taught me how to pray, got me into praying. Uh, he, was, he was an alcoholic. And so when he got born again, he quit going to stores that sold alcohol because he knew that was a weakness for him. So that's setting yourself up to succeed, right? And he got, uh, the Lord delivered him and he didn't want to give himself the opportunity to go back to that. So whatever that means, that's just one example. But a lot of times it's relationships, a lot of times it's situations, and there are situations where you may be in a situation where you might need to switch a job or anything. Who knows? God, look, God will lead you in that, but if something is tending you or leading you away from Him, that's not a good thing. So you don't want that going on in your life, so you just need to pray, let the Lord, and if the Lord closes the door, uh, He's good about opening doors. Can you say Amen. He said, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, and that's how that works, right? So now he's saying, parastano, or set yourself up uh, as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That's how it would take you. For when you were slaves of sin, in verse 20, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So here's the trick, right? The Lord comes by, rescues you and me from a life of sin. And somewhere out there, if we're not careful, we can let our senses get dulled. And we think, and here's how the devil works on us, right? He tries to lure people back out into those arenas because in the back of our mind, we thought, well, we got by with it before we escaped, right? But we only escaped because of the grace of God. And that's a lie. If God hadn't stepped into our life the first time, sin would have destroyed us. So don't buy into that lie. Well, you, you didn't die the last time. Well, the reason we didn't die the last time is because God rescued us, right? And that, that's how the enemy works. He likes to get us to forget how we were brought out and what God done. He says... For the end of those things is death, but now having been set free from sin, everybody say set free, from sin, and having become slaves of God, that's what happened, right? We now present ourselves to God. That's what we do in our Christian life. Now, uh, we may get over there at some point, we probably will, but John talks a lot about the practice of things, right? In his epistles. And then we use that word here, present. Now, when you get born again or saved or however you say that, when you come to Christ and give your life to Him, it doesn't mean that you don't fail anymore. You will fail. Uh, but, it, but your practice has changed, right? You no longer practice lawlessness or unrighteousness. Now you practice righteousness. Do you fail from time to time? Yes, we all do. But our practice has changed. We've switched fields, right? 
we started working in the Lord's field instead of being in the enemy's field. So that doesn't mean that we don't fail from time to time. It just means we, now our life is a practice of doing God's will instead of doing our own will. That's what changed. Does your will still come up? Sure it does. And that's why Paul said what he said in verse 19. He said, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of, of our flesh. Right? He knows that's the battle. Now, <clears throat> if I could, let me take you to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and we'll come back to Romans here. But in Matthew 26, Jesus gives us some clear information here of the same thing Paul's dealing with. Jesus is clear on this. <clears throat> Matthew 26, verse 36, he says, Then Jesus came to them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So that's part of prayer, being circumspect when you pray. And then he said, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And that, that will be a battle for all of us at times. Your will will be different than God's will. And you'll have to struggle. You'll have to battle through that. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So if you forget, or if I forget, that we're in a war, you'll get caught off guard. You need to remind yourself every day that you're in a war. There's a war going on between good and evil. There's a battle taking place. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6. Jesus talks about it here. And they, James talks about falling into temptation. Jesus talks about entering into temptation. So if you don't watch and pray, if you don't stay on your guard and remember, you have an adversary. And what's the Bible say about him? He says he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And when you read about, like if you go back to Proverbs chapter 7, and it talks about that harlot in chapter 7, it says she slays many strong men. Not weak men. Strong men. So when you see all this stuff, how the Bible tells us and reminds us that we're in a war, you, you, we, don't get, we don't get days off from Satan. He's always trying to get some kind of... So just keep your guard up. Remind yourself of that. Know that the flesh is weak. That the spirit, the spirit desire. We're going to see that play out in the next chapter. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's the biggest battle. Now, probably all of you have recognized this if you've been saved more than two hours. Your biggest enemy is the person you brush the teeth every day. That's our biggest enemy, ourselves. That's where we struggle, right? Because he don't want, the, what's Paul say? The natural man does not receive the things of God. So we all have a natural person that we have to drag around everywhere we go, right? And, and so you've got the battle between the flesh and the spirit. You've got the natural man that's reluctant to receive the things of God. And that's getting harder and harder to do because the world just keeps crowding in on our children and now uh, <clears throat> my dad went to school for the first time when he was nine I went to the school for the first time when I was six now they want them as early as they can get them now why do you think they do that we've seen the battles between parenting and the government all over this land and that's that's a subtle thing and some people have good intentions but the enemy wants to secularize everything. And, and I read this, this is an old, old statistic, I read this probably eight years ago, that 4% of 12-year-olds in America had a biblical worldview. 
And that was about eight years ago or so. Do you know what, I, do you know what that means? That means that 4% of 12-year-olds in America view the world through God's perspective. 96% of 12-year-olds in this country view the world through a different lens than the truth of God. That's what will take us down. That along with all the innocent blood we've shed. But a nation will not survive with that kind of rejection of God. And that's staggering to think that that many 12-year-olds in this country have a different worldview than the, than the one who made the world. And I challenge you as you read your Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation, notice how many times God, through the Word and through the Holy Spirit, reminds us He's the Creator over and over and over. Because the one that's the Creator has the last say in everything. I've often said, how would you like to be God? Create everything and get credit for nothing. That's where we're at. We're in a world now that don't give God credit for anything, but He made it all. And the world's going to find that out. Tragically, most of the world's going to find that out on the day of judgment. They're not going to find it out. They're turning a deaf ear to God. They don't want to hear His truth. And so most of the world's going to find out that He's the judge and the creator and the Savior. And they, they're going to find out too late. Because many are going to destruction and few are going to heaven. To life eternal. But we all have that choice. And God is not near as hidden as we, some people like to make Him out to be. Those of you that are born again, some, there are people in this building that lived rough lives. I get it. Some lived rough lives more than others. Some had parents that had no inclination toward God. You found Christ through whatever. But here's what I would say to all of us. Look how God came after you. Look how He met you. He's doing the same thing with Him. Listen, people are not near as ignorant about God as they let on. And when you go back to the book of Exodus, and you can, if you can get back into the Hebrew language and find you some ways to understand that, this has one of, been one of the biggest questions I've been asked in ministry in 30-some years. The question was, how come God hardened Pharaoh's heart? How's that fair? Well, if you study that, Pharaoh, his speech betrayed him in the, in the language because Pharaoh knew who God was. He was just blowing him off. It wasn't like God took a man who didn't know who he was. His speech betrayed him because of the names and stuff that he used for God, letting us know he knew who God was. He just didn't want to submit to him. And so God used that moment. That is one of the most, <clears throat> two, the, two of the most concerning verses in the Bible are not found in the book of Revelation. One of them is found in the book of Judges, and the other one is found in Thessalonians. The two most concerning verses in the Bible to me are found in Judges and Thessalonians. The one in Judges said, where Samson was at, said the Spirit of the Lord left him, and he knew it not. That is a frightening place to be. The Spirit of the Lord, that's more frightening than anything you can read in the book of Revelation. And the other thing is, in Thessalonians, the Bible said, because the world did not love truth, God sent them a strong delusion that they would believe a lie and be damned. They refuse the truth. Now, I'm going to say something to you. If you and I reject the truth, there isn't nowhere else to go. Because everybody else that's lied to us, from Mohammed to scientists, they're all dead and still in the grave. There's only one that rose from the dead. Prove it. And I, I hear the critics. I've been in this a long time. That's what your Bible says. Oh, no, it's not just my Bible. The Romans and the Jews both testified that Jesus come out of the grave in their canon. And that's why they tried to buy people off to get them to lie. 
Jesus is the only one that come out of that grave. And I want to say this loud and clear. Until somebody else comes out of the grave to eternal life, talk to the hand. Because until somebody else, I'm going with the one that originated in heaven, came down from heaven, went back to heaven, and gave us the truths of his father. I don't need somebody telling me something that overrides what Jesus said, who rose from the dead, because the rest of them are still in the grave. So he says, uh, the spirit's willing, but the, but the flesh is weak, right? That's what we battle with. Just live your life. In the practice. And Jesus is feeling that for us, right? He, the Bible says he was tempted in all points like we were, yet without sin. So that's, that, that's why he's such a good comforter, right? That's why he's somebody we can go to. He, he knows the roadmap. Because look what it says after that. Again, a second time he went away and prayed saying, Oh, Father, if this, cup, if, it, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. So he said... If it is possible in verse 20, or excuse me, verse 39, then he reiterates that there in verse 42. So he was feeling that battle, right? He knew. Imagine that. None of us really know, unless it comes down to the very end, how we're going to leave here, right? Imagine being 12 years old and probably younger than that, but at least we, we see him come on the scene at 12 years old and he's in the temple teaching the, the guys that's supposed to know everything and he knew more than they did because he's the son of God, right? And so imagine being 12 years old and knowing your wife is taking you straight to a cross. What a battle. He lived his whole life with that cross in front of him. He knew they were going to beat him. He knew how they were going to mistreat him. There's no debate on that. That's all historical. No question about that. The people that deny that are the same people that deny the Holocaust. A bunch of liars. There's no question about that. And, and the Bible says, let everything be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So the Jews and the Romans and the Scripture all testify that Jesus came out of that grave. But can you imagine staring at that cross, knowing they were going to beat you with that whip? Most theologians believe that <clears throat> Jesus was whipped so badly on the block that his organs were showing by the time they quit. His kidneys would have been showing. Then they shoved a crown of thorns on his head, punched him, spit on him, and laid an old splintery rugged cross that most likely Barabbas had cut out while he was waiting to be crucified and laid that on a back that was already shredded like hamburger meat. No mere man would have survived that beating. They'd never made it to Golgotha. They would have died. So what kept Jesus from dying? To lose that much blood... And your, 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 probably his kidneys were lacerated. Everything in the back, back there lacerated. His intestine, everything. No mere man. It had to be God or they would have died on the block. And the reason death reigns, the Bible says, is because of sin. And remember what Jesus kept telling us? He said, no man's taking my life. I'm laying it down. Jesus couldn't die unless he gave up the ghost. And that's exactly what the Bible said he did. He gave up the ghost. He laid his life down. Why? Because death had no claim on him. He had no sin. So they could have beat him till 24 hours and he wouldn't have died on the block. He was going to die exactly like the father had planned it out. And when he got on that cross, he was going to give up the ghost. Because death only reigns because of sin. Do you realize that if Adam and Eve, and I got no stones to throw at Adam and Eve because I've seen enough out of my own life to know I'd have blown it in the garden too. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is if Adam and Eve had not fell in the garden, we would have been living forever. Sin is what brings death. Now let's go back to Romans because that's what he's getting ready to say here and put in us. He says, he says in verse 22, in Romans, uh, he says, let me back up to verse 21, the end there after that question mark. For the end of all of those things is death, but now having been set free from sin, and in verse 22, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, the end of everlasting life. That's what he gave us, right? He gave us everlasting life, like he has. For, uh, what's that song we sing? Uh, if the grave didn't hold him back, then it ain't holding us back either, right? For the wages of sin is death, there it is, and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So, as we've said before here, 
got one of my hankies. I don't know what I did with that. This, uh, you're not, you didn't get righteous by, by your works or by pleasing God with your own self. We got made righteous because he clothed us with his righteousness. That's what it means to be born again. You and I accept him as our savior. His life clothes my life. Don't look under there. It's a mess. What? Only God and my wife are allowed to see under there. It's a man. So God clothes us with the righteousness of a son, of his son. That's what makes us right before God. He clothes us, right? Remember when Jesus gave that parable, he said, uh, Who's that guy over there without a wedding garment? He can't be in here. Put him out. He might have had the best suit in town, right? And that's how a lot of people think. I'm going to get up there and reason with God. Really? I ain't saying a word. I'm keeping my mouth shut because <laughs> I don't want to get up there and run my mouth and Jesus look at me over and him say, you really don't know what you're talking about. I'm gonna, you know what I'm going to do when I get to heaven? When I see Jesus, I'm saying, I'm with him. He let me in here. But a lot of people, because we're so saturated with education and it's become a God, and I'm not against education if they would quit kicking God out of it. My wife lives that life. I was going to be a school teacher before God called me to do this. Had a lot of plans in life, right? <laughs> but education ain't no God. And you know what? If you think you know something, the Bible says that his foolishness is greater than our wisdom. That's who God is. So we get clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And now God sees me clothed with his righteousness, not my own. Because mine's not, Paul said mine's like filthy rags. And then the journey from here till heaven or till I get called home or you get, is to take this righteousness and work it in the fabric of who I am. So not only am I clothed with righteousness, but I'm being filled with it. That's what the journey's about. So that I become more like Christ. The more that righteousness that I'm clothed in floods my life, the more I become like Christ. And that's what the journey's about. I wish somebody told me 25 years ago, or 45, I guess, that discipleship was a journey, not a destination. We got that mixed up in a lot of churches, that you got saved today and you're going to be perfect tomorrow. Well, I still ain't perfect. Well, what happened with that doctrine? And the people that tried to lay that trip on us, they forgot to tell the people they were trying to lay that trip on that they weren't perfect either. And so you're on a journey, brothers and sisters, and this righteousness, you stay under there, you stay clothed in His righteousness, and let it have its perfect work, right? Let it have its perfect work so that not only will you be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but let it start affecting your mind. Your mind ain't that good. Mine ain't either. We did such a bang-up job before Jesus, right? And so let him affect everything in your life, your mind, your spirit, your body. Let him bring all that together, unified under the righteousness of who he is. And then he says, we got this sin taking us to death, but he says God's offering us eternal life. And this should go on. This chapter was thrown in there later by Eusebius and them. So this thought continues. It says, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. So he's talking to people who know the law. The, 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 the Roman church had a lot of Jewish folks in it when they established it. And they understood the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband, and he's going to help them understand how this works because of the laws that Israel had concerning a husband and wife. And he's trying to get them to understand how the law works with that. He says, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that, that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So basically what happens is we got released, thanks to the work of Christ, from the law so that we could be married to another, which is grace. Jesus came in. Think about this. There's the law. That old woman, that old husband that nobody could get along with. 
right? And Jesus came in and married them. He married the law. He kept the law. Every jot and tittle. He kept every single ordinance of the law. He was perfect. And he kept it. He married her so she wouldn't be free to marry any of us. You get it? And now he said, you guys go marry Grace. She's a way better woman. Or husband, however, which are, right? He, he freed us up so we could marry Grace and have that covenant, that new covenant. Now, let me say some things to you. The law didn't start this whole thing off, right? And if you've not, uh, I'm going to say this like that one thing. They say, if you ain't watched it, you better watch it. Go back on the YouTube channel and watch the 20-minute clip or 20-some minutes about the x-ray. It explains this. I'm going to use a little bit of it here, but go watch the x-ray clip. If you don't watch the x-ray clip between now and Sunday, you owe me 20 bucks when you come to the church. Or some fried chicken. Whatever you want to bring. <laughs> so the x-ray, the, the, the law, it was always been by faith. Abram, or later became Abraham, he was called by faith, right? They were living by faith. And then God, over here in the fullness of time, sent his son, Jesus, right? That's all about faith. In between here, he gave us the law. And we're going to see about that here just in a second. That law came... After faith, faith was, the law didn't precede faith. Faith was already going on. But we're so stubborn and we live in this old, mean, contentious flesh. God said, okay, you want to live with me? Then here's what I require. If you want to live with me, here's what I require. And wham, he laid out the law. And we said, uh-oh, we can't keep it, right? But the law did two things. The law Proved us our need for a Savior, right? And it also showed us our inability to do it on our own, to please God. We couldn't keep the law, so we need a Savior. We need a mediator as Job. That's what Job was crying out for. He said, oh, that I had a daysman. It's how the old King James said, it's a mediator, somebody that could go between me and God and, and stand in the gap for me. We have him. His name's Jesus. But the law only came to give us an x-ray of the problem. When you go to the doctor, they will x-ray or run some kind of test that has, you know, all those cameras and stuff that they uh, put everywhere, right? And they, they take pictures and they take uh, external, sometimes internal, take pictures of things to, de to decide to see what's going on, right? But that don't fix the problem. See, that's the law. The law didn't fix the problem it only exposed the problem. You still got to have the great physician is what Isaiah calls him, Jesus. You still got to have the great physician. You can go to the doctor, get an x-ray, but you still got to have the surgeon to come in and fix the problem, right? And that's us, right? So you go back and, and, and read that or us, you got to bring me a chicken leg Sunday. <clears throat> x-ray, you'll see it on those short clips in there. So he says, uh, so he gives us the, the parallel. Jesus come in and married that old contentious law so that we didn't have to live under it and married, be married to it and freed us up to live under the new covenant. <clears throat> he says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law, in verse 4, uh, uh, through the body of Christ, right? So this is how I'm dead to the law. I'm in Him now. I'm in Christ. He said, that's how you became dead to the law, that you may be married to another. Thank God we didn't have to live under the law. Thank God you don't have to bring animals in here, and thank God I don't have to kill them. Because we got one sacrifice once and for all, Paul said. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You're so good to us. He raised from the dead, this Christ, that we might be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh and sinful passions, that's everybody, we're all born into sin. I know we may not like that, but I'm going to tell you something. I don't care if Adam fell or not, you was going to fall, I was going to fall. 
And we was going to be under condemnation. And the law was going to expose that. But thanks be to God, he had a plan the whole time. Because the Bible says in the book of Revelation that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, him and the Father, because Jesus is eternal, him and the Father had already entered into what most theologians call the everlasting covenant, that Jesus would be the propitiation or the atonement for our sin. I'm telling you, when Adam and Eve fell off the train in the garden, God wasn't called off guard. He had already set it up for his son to step in and take our place. Somebody ought to give God praise for that. Amen. So God wasn't caught off guard when Adam and Eve fell. He went up there scratching his head, looking over at Jesus on his right hand, saying, what are we going to do now? These guys blew it. That's not what God did. God, God's never caught off guard. He's already been around the corner before we get there. God's not caught off guard. He had a foolproof plan. All we have to do is believe in his son, and we're in. Follow Jesus. That's, that's, this is really, that's what, what we're called to do. And he says, uh, now we've been, uh, in verse 5, he says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, and that's what we're going to get to here now, uh, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. This is that x-ray, right? But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit uh, and, the, and not the oldness of the letter. So understand your position. It overrides your condition. My position is I'm in Christ. And then start practicing by setting yourself up to do righteousness. Set yourself up. Do not allow the enemy or the flesh to govern your life. Set yourself up to do the right thing. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Uh, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, uh, we, I don't believe in a certain age of accountability. I think it comes sooner to others. Some, uh, God's fair. He knows everybody's heart. He knows what people are exposed to. I had a mom that started putting a word in me when I was a little bitty boy. So I was getting accountable early on, right? So some people, and some people come to the, that accountability when the law comes alive and you realize the difference between right and wrong. Somebody that might happen at five years old. Somebody that might happen at 12 years old. Who knows? But God knows when that moment happens in our lives when we realize the difference between right and wrong. And that's what Paul said. He said, the law came. Sin was dead before that, but said, when I, when I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, the law, when the x-ray, when they took the x-ray, I saw what was going on. I felt it, but I didn't know what it was. Then they took the x-ray, and I said, that's what it is. Sin was dead. He said, for a part of while sin was dead, I was alive. Sin revived, he said, when the, when the commandment came or the x-ray showed up. And I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. You know, I know sometimes it's very disappointing, and it's heartbreaking, and it's hard to get the news, right? And some of you, Troy and... People, all of us, a lot of people. But when they walked, when the cardiologist walked in and said, I, you got three blocked arteries, it was kind of weird. <laughs> I thought, first thing I thought is, you didn't read that right, did you? <laughs> but, you know, it's hard to hear that news when the doctor comes in and says this or that or other. But, but that's what exposes the problem, right? It, figures out the problem once the problem's exposed then you can start dealing with it if you don't realize you're a sinner you're probably not going to deal with it once you realize it have you noticed how the devil is I, I'm going to take you to one point we've all noticed how he is he's a jerk <laughs> but have you noticed the devil not, has never tried to talk you into the fact that Buddha's not real or Mohammed's not real? 
The only one he tries to talk people into not believing in is Jesus Christ. He don't run around telling us Buddha ain't real or Confucius ain't real or Mohammed's not real. He don't spend any time doing that. He just wants people to not believe in Jesus. So he runs around telling people Jesus is not real. The guy that sold a million albums, the first guy who sold the first first million album seller as a Christian, his name's Keith Green. He was a Jew. He died early in a plane crash. But he he was the first gospel artist to sell a million albums. He got saved out of the hippie movement. And he said the reason he came to Christ was he, he was raised Jewish. I don't know that he was raised in the Jewish faith, but he was a Jew, his family. And he said that he started looking at all the different religions, and he said it didn't matter which one it was, they all gave Jesus some credit. They said, well, Jesus, and some of them would say Jesus is one of the ways, but, or they would say Jesus is a good pro. He said it was uncanny to him how Islam, Buddhism, and all of them would give Jesus some credit. They just said, but there's another way, right? But he said, then he got a Bible and read where Jesus said, there ain't no other way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And said, he didn't give anybody credit but himself. Now, let me say something about that. Either Jesus had the biggest ego that the world's ever seen, or he's who he said he was. And the fact that he come out of that grave proves he's who he said he was. Mohammed's still in the grave. Buddha's still in the grave. Confused. And let me say something about Buddha. Poor Buddha. Buddha never claimed to be deity. I don't know where people got that idea. They need to read and, and learn a little bit. Buddha never, they made him deity 700 years after he was dead. He never claimed to be deity. He was an extremist. You know that? He went this way, extreme worldly. He went the other way, extreme religion. He went, and then he finally said, I'm going to take that middle path. That's what's working for me. He never claimed to be deity. They made him deity after he was gone. Jesus did. He said, I'm God in the flesh. He said, I am the one. Can't get to the Father unless you're coming through here. And so either Jesus is who he said, and that's what the world's going to be judged on. And just think about that. I know that's elementary. But just think about how all these other world religions give credit to Jesus as being a good prophet or maybe even another way. And notice how the enemy never tries to talk you out of believing in Buddha, in Buddha or Mohammed because he knows you'll be deceived if you do that. The only person he tries to talk us out of is Jesus. You ought to think about that. And then he says, uh, <clears throat> verse 12, he says, Therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So what Paul said, and I use this a lot when I'm in these kind of scriptures. You see that $5 bill? This is my $5 bill. I'm going to go get me some chicken. (laughs) If I drop this $5 bill and I don't know it and you do and you pick it up after knowing it's mine and keep it, that's sin. You stole that because you knew it was mine. Right? I'm not talking about walking out in the middle of a parking lot and nobody's around and there's a $20 bill and you don't know who. I'm talking about you saw me drop that and you, you knew it was mine and you, when I had my back turned or maybe I didn't know I dropped it and left, you picked it up and kept it. That's stealing. But if a, a two-year-old comes in here and sees me drop that and picks it up, it ain't stealing to them. They don't have any understanding, right? They, they may eat it. They may tear it up and throw it in the trash can. They may flush it down the toilet. It's not stealing them because the law's not come to life in them, right? Right and wrong. They don't, it don't have any value to them, right? So that's, that's what happens when the law comes. I see. I'm running out of time. Let me go just a little bit further. Has he, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death uh, in me. Through what is good. So that was working in him already because the fall had already happened. So the x ray comes along. The problem's already there because you've had pain there for however long or something's not right, right? 
and and or maybe you just got a checkup or whatever. But that 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 X-ray finds that problem, exposes it is the better way. It exposes the problem. So the sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. That's what happened because I, I it come to life to me. I saw what was going on. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will to, not to do, I agree that the law, with the law, that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So there's that law came to life, and he realized the battle. And he didn't know he was bad until the law came. And then when the law came, or the x-ray showed up, it said, this is what's inside of you, and that's what's causing you to be bad. That's sin. And he says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I've got a problem. I've got a spiritual cancer. So what are you going to do with that? You're going to let the x-ray expose it. And you're going to let the physician heal it. He says, I find in the law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. That's the battle. Spirit. Flesh, spirit, flesh. That's the battle. How can I make myself more successful in that? That's what we're talking about. Setting yourself up, right? Setting yourself up to succeed. Get in the Word. Let your mind be renewed. I, I share this a lot, but it's such a wonderful thing. And it's from a teenager, but it, every adult should practice this as well. Years ago, I ran into a situation where this, uh, this young girl who was 17 years old went to high school in Chicago, Illinois. And when she come home from high school every day, she would go up to her room and she would lock herself in her room for about 30 minutes and then come back down. Wouldn't say nothing to nobody. <clears throat> After a couple of weeks of this, her mother said she got worried about it. Said she started thinking, what could be going on where she's just staying away from the family as soon as she gets home? You know, she thought maybe she's on drugs. Just all kinds of things went through her head. <clears throat> and finally, she got, the mother got enough courage up to ask her. said, one day, after this went on for a couple weeks, said, what, what's going on? said, you come in every day from high school. You go up to your room. You lock the rest of us out. You do not come out for 30 minutes or so until you come out and, have, and speak with the rest of us. And she says, well, Mom, she said, I go to high school every day. She said, I hear everything and see everything in that high school. And she said, by the end of the day in that high school in Chicago, she said, I begin to think that that's normal. Come on now. She said, I come home every day, 17-year-old girl, go up to my room and read my Bible to remind myself that ain't normal, this is. This is normal. Every adult should live like that. Not just teenagers. But what maturity in a girl that recognized that and lived that kind of life. He says uh, in verse 23, he says, But I see another law of my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Now listen to his cry and then listen to his solution. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death or this struggle? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's his deliverance. That's our deliverance. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. And I'll come back into chapter 8. But let me just run in there real quick and run out before we close. <clears throat> there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the shift that's got to take place. If you, a lot of us just read the first front end of that verse. You can't do that. You'll have to bring me some more chicken if you do that. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we stop there. But read the rest of the verse. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you and I walk after the flesh, we'll live in condemnation. It'll clobber us. It ain't just, well, I'm saved, there's no more condemnation for me. Well, if you walk after the flesh, you'll get your brains beat out with condemnation. That's how it works. The devil be right there on your shoulder. You're a liar. You're a hypocrite. We all know what that's like because we've all done it probably. Walked after the flesh even after we were born again. And that, that's where the condemnation just is overwhelming. The devil just standing right there saying, See, you ain't who you say you are. You're a liar. You're a liar. You're a Pharisee. You're a hypocrite. Right? So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk after the Spirit and not the flesh. If we walk, I don't care who you are, who any of us are. If you live a life in the flesh, you're going to get beat to death with condemnation. That's how it works. We give access to the enemy. So what we're trying to learn here is the good news is when the x-ray came, it didn't kill us. Then the great physician come in and offered us healing, right? And he said, the great physician not only offered us healing, but he said, I'm going to marry that old spouse that ain't no good for you. I'm going to marry them and I'm going to free you up to marry this new guy or new gal who's full of grace and mercy and truth and long-suffering. Wow, don't everybody want a spouse like that? Turn around and look at your spouse and say, why ain't you that what? <laughs> right, so that's what, man, isn't that so good? He married the old... I'm, try, I'm trying to say it both sides so nobody gets offended. <laughs> no, I'm going to get everybody. I just want to make sure I get them all. He, he, Jesus come in and, mo, mo, and married that old bat and, and that old geezer and left us free to marry a wonderful person who's full of long-suffering, truth, mercy, and grace. Can we give the Lord praise for that? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So remember, you've been released from that old bat and that old geezer, whatever your gender is. <laughs> been free to marry the perfect one. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for this mercy that none of us have earned or deserved. We just thank you for it. We love you. There ain't a person in this building, including the man that's standing in this pulpit today, not any of us that are perfect. But we're so thankful you did take the x-ray. And we're so thankful you did heal us. And we're so thankful that you've made a way for us to have eternal life. Life would be miserable without knowing we had eternal life. If we have hope only in this life, Paul said we would be miserable people. But we have hope beyond the grave. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. And everybody said. Amen.